I could listen to Haley sing all day long. Really, really beautiful. Fellowship uh, has the opportunity to make music, and uh, 
We've got a great thing going with Fellowship Worship, so listen on Spotify, wherever you listen to music. Um, good morning. Welcome to Fellowship. My name's Abel. I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, this is our launch time of year. The Sunday after Labor Day, every year, we get adult small groups going, and a great time to connect. In fact, Right now, over in uh, the other building upstairs, Discover, large group number one is going on. So Discover is our recommended first step for anyone who is new to fellowship. So if you are new, we have an eight-week experience, and uh, you are welcome to stand up, and we won't point or or, uh, make any big deal, but you're welcome to walk over there right now and jump in and just say, hey, the the guy told me to come over, okay? So um, Discover starting today. Also, our community groups launch this week, um, small groups of all kinds. This is our fall launch time. So one of the opportunities we have is our women's small groups. And this is Stephanie Getz. Stephanie's married to Steve, and they have a son, Henry, who's a sophomore at U of A, and a daughter, Abby, who's a senior in high school. They've been around fellowship for 14 years, and they are great people, humble, generous, servant-hearted, wonderful people. We are grateful that Stephanie came on staff three weeks ago, and so um, really grateful to have you on our staff, and tell us about Women's Small Groups. Thanks, Abel. I'm very grateful to be on staff and to serve alongside this wonderful team. Um, I want to tell you about the women's opportunities that are launching this week, You may feel like I'm a little late to the game, but you are not. We have uh, 12 different small group opportunities, studies for women, and we have amazing leaders in this body who are giving of their time and their gifts to serve, to lead these groups. And so these launch this week. The very first one starts tomorrow night, and you can find the registration. You can go to this QR code on the stage and find a link there. Um, I think it'll take you to the Fellowship Benville page and then look for women's. But we have 12 different opportunities for you to plug in and serve. If you're new to fellowship, this is the very best way to get plugged in. I have, I can honestly say that the most significant friendships that I have in my life were formed out of women's small groups. And I'm so very thankful for that. Also, um, just a reminder that our church is a church of small groups. We have large group, and we gather in here and worship on Sundays, but small group is where the real ministry happens. This is the place where we come together and study God's word together. We pray for one another, encourage one another, challenge each other. Um, Small groups are just vital to our ministry here, so we would love to have you jump in in a women's small group. I wanted to tell you just a quick story about a young lady that I got. I visited a small group a couple months back, and I met a young woman who had been invited to visit one of our small groups at the park in Bentonville. She had moved here during COVID and didn't know anybody, and one of our ladies from our body invited her to come to this small group, and she did, and she's been studying God's Word alongside some really awesome women in our church And as a result of that, is getting more connected. She and her husband are going to be joining a community group this fall. So jump in with us. We'd love to have you. I love it. Really, small groups are the way to make this large church feel small and to get connected. Uh, One of the things I really appreciate, appreciate about the women's small groups is the variety. So much variety in these small groups. They have a mountain bike small group. They have 
deep dive into scripture small group, widow small groups. They have all kinds. So um, look, look on, the, on the website and you'll get to see all those opportunities. Hey, we get the joy of celebrating baptism together. So let's turn our attention to the Arendt's family and Caroline Rhodes. Hello, this is our nine-year-old daughter, Elena. Um, Elena developed a love for Jesus at the age of four. She became, uh, she began attending a Christian uh, pre-K program. She's always been the type to ask a lot of questions, especially those that have to do with Jesus. She's always been wanting to know the whys and hows. I think it was a couple of years ago when she was able to witness her uncle giving his life over to Jesus. Since that day, she wanted to know, why did Uncle Ryan get in the bathtub at church? We started explaining what baptism meant and what an important decision it is between her and God. From when she decided, um, from then she decided she wanted to get baptized, but her dad and I knew she wasn't quite ready. One day, I was in her room, I noticed a cut-out piece of paper that she had taped to her desk that read, God is my hero. She, um, she's absolutely correct, God is our hero. I would always receive pictures from her teachers at school or church that showed me how much of a godly leader that she is, even at such a young age. There would be pictures of Elena holding hands with someone praying because they were scared or sad. She always has the biggest heart for all of those around her. Just within the past couple of years, she came to us again and expressed how much she wanted Jesus to forgive her of her sins, and she wanted to follow him forever. She wanted to share the decision with others by being baptized. We reached out to Caroline here at Fellowship and asked what we needed to do to make this happen. She gave Elena a study book on baptism, which allowed Elena to work through with just a little bit of our help to be really understand, to really able to understand the whys and hows of baptism. With that and the guidance from her dad and her papa, she was ready. Elena is so excited to be here today and share her decision to accept Jesus as her Lord and Savior for you to witness her being baptized. Elena, is it your will and testament in front of all our family and church family that you want to follow Jesus Christ? Okay, I now baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Stand up, stand up. Fellowship, will you stand? We're gonna sing this song which really just marks the moment that Jesus came into the world to now. It's like our spiritual heritage and it's a beautiful thing to be able to stand with you as a family to celebrate this moment and why we're all here to sing together. In the darkness we were waiting without hope, without light, till from heaven you came running. There was mercy in your eyes to fulfill of endless glory to a cradle in the dirt. 
see. Well, this week I was reading uh, on prayer, a book on prayer, and um, an intro to the book just really grabbed my attention and uh, made me think personally. It made me just evaluate where am I in relation to God in this moment, in this season. And, um, and it reminded me of what repentance is and that it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. It, that's good news. Repentance is good news. And if you're anything like me, I kind of grew up in a, in a church background where repentance had this like heavy shame kind of component for me. Uh, that became actually a really negative thing, and, and uh, it reflected how I really saw God, um, his character and nature. Um, but anyway, so the kindness of God leads us to repentance. It's him welcoming, welcoming us into life, right? And so what I want to do is I just want to read a couple paragraphs from this and invite you to just listen and uh, reflect with God. Just be quiet, be with him, and hear these words. Today, the heart of God is an open wound of love. He aches over our distance and preoccupation. He mourns that we do not draw near to him. He grieves that we have forgotten him. He weeps over our obsession with muchness in manyness. He longs for our presence. And he is inviting you and me to come home. To come home where we belong. To come home to that for which we were created. His arms are stretched out wide to receive us. His heart is enlarged to take us in. For too long, we have been in a far country, a country of noise and hurry and crowds, a country of climb and push and shove, a country of frustration and fear and intimidation. And he welcomes us home, home to serenity and peace and joy, home to friendship and fellowship and openness home to intimacy and acceptance and affirmation. God is inviting us home this morning. Maybe you feel like you've been in a far country. I just invite you, wherever you are, will you just spend a moment with him right now? Turn your face toward him. Respond to his invitation.
without you I fall apart You're the one that guides my heart Lord, I need all I
riches that are ours through Jesus. Open our eyes. above every name, all glory and honor and praise. Amen. Let's sing this out. High King of heaven, 
that we place in front of us, as Psalm 16 says, that we would set you before us, the reality of who you are, your goodness, your way of life, the truth always in front of us. God, thank you for your word. I pray that you would give us vision to see everything that you want us to see this morning from your word. And we pray it in Jesus' name. That's a good and right prayer. That dependence on the Spirit of God, to use the Word of God and the people of God so that we might become a little bit more like the Son of God. That's really, every time we gather and worship, that's really all we're about in a nutshell. Good morning. How are you? Hey, uh, you'll have memorable community groups just like I've had them. By the way, you'll have many more forgettable community groups just like I have. And that's kind of normal. I've eaten many forgettable meals in my life and still grateful to be well-fed for them. But I am grateful for the memorable ones that happened. I'll never forget the evening that uh, we gathered right after one of the couples in our group had just adopted two young boys out of the foster system. And Dan and his wife, I asked Dan, how's the adjustment going so far? And he said, actually, pretty well, considering all the boys have had to go through in their life pretty well, except this one strange habit that we can't seem to help them break. And that is every night after we have dinner, they sneak food from the table and they hide it in their pillowcases or hide the food in their dressers. And we've had to keep meeting with them saying, that's not healthy, that food is spoiled now. And and there will be plenty of food for you in the morning. You will be fed in the morning. You don't have to hide and, and sneak food. But they don't believe us, and so it'll take a while for that to stick. You see, adoption had happened to those boys, but all the blessings of adoption hadn't quite sunk in for those boys. Uh, they were not understanding the security that adoption would bring from this time forward. And their adoption was not the problem. No, their belief in the blessings of adoption, well, that, that took some time for them to grow into. And so it does for us as well. Our spiritual adoption, never the problem. Our belief in that adoption and the growing and the security of that adoption, oh, that can take some time for us to grow into. And that's what we looked at last week in the first part of Ephesians chapter 1, The first half of Ephesians chapter 1, we looked at who we are in Christ, and we kind of summarized it with three statements at the end of last week. We said that as Paul talked about our adoption in Christ because of the past choice of the Father, 
we are now his in Christ. And at the same time, because of the present riches of the Son, we, are, or we have all we need in Christ. And also, where we ended in the last two verses, because of the future work of the Spirit, we will be like Christ fully one day. And you remember we said last week that that entire section that we looked at was actually one long sentence in the Greek, and it had a reoccurring phrase in there, 13 times, in Christ came up, which hints to us that that might be the theme. Who we are in Christ is where we went last week. But what does that mean as that seeps into our spiritual blood and starts to change the, the way we grow? Well, that's where the end of last week starts to hinge Ephesians chapter 1 as a passage. Because the end of last week ended in verse 13 and 14 with Paul telling us that through the Spirit, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, believed in Jesus, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. In other words, until we take hold of the full possession of it, to the praise of his glory. What Paul says as he ends this all this means in Christ, he says, listen, you and me understand, when you believed in him, something of God came to live in you. And actually not something of God. We see in the text here in verse 13 and 14, some one of God. Once we placed our faith in the Son of God, the, the Spirit of God came to take up residence in our life. And, and let's make sure that we don't call the Holy Spirit an it. I don't like being called an it, do you? Nor does he. He's not a force. This is not a Star Wars kind of theology. He is the third person of the Trinity. And our faith in the Son of God causes the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit of God, to take up residence in our life. And when he does that, he says he does two things for us. First off, he seals us, which means we have a whole new identity. Remember the signet ring of a king or a noble in Paul's day? They would mark and say, this one is mine. The Holy Spirit, if you've placed your faith in Jesus, has marked you and said, you are mine. And because you're his and he's eternal, well, you've got that kind of guarantee going as well. You as well have the Holy Spirit as a guarantee of a new future that awaits for you. So you think about that. The Spirit born, new identity, and new future. And men and women who walk an ordinary world, and the ordinary world can make you forget who you are, but you can forget your adoption, and you can go back to trying to scavenger up food on your own and provide for yourself. And Paul says, I know that's the temptation. And so I really want you to get this. No, really want you to get this. And he goes to the next sentence in Ephesians chapter 1. Remember, the first chunk of Ephesians was one long sentence. The second chunk of Ephesians is one more long sentence in the original language. Masterful theology. Wouldn't pass ninth grade grammar. Masterful theology. And so much to teach us about who we are. In fact, this will be a prayer. Paul actually says, I don't want you just to think about these things. I'm praying for you. And so verse 15 through 23 is the first of two prayers in the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 1 is a prayer that we would be 
And then Ephesians chapter 3 will have a second famous prayer. It's a prayer that we would know, or excuse me, first of all, know, and second of all, be. And that makes a lot of sense because the first half of Ephesians, it's who we are in Christ. And Paul wants us to know this. The second half of Ephesians is how we live in Christ. And Paul wants us to be this. Let's look at the prayer together in verse 15. For this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. Or as the NIV says, if you're looking in your Ephesians study guide, it says, I pray that you would know him better and better. Now you think about all that Paul could pray for a church that he knows really well and loves a lot. And that's the Ephesian church. By the way, Ephesus is this one city he spent the most time, three years in Ephesus. This was a church he knew well. He understood their personal needs. He was picturing their faces as he prayed for them. He also understood the challenge of what it was like to live where they lived. He knew Ephesus. His last memory of Ephesus, a riot in Acts 19, all because of the gospel, as he and some of his fellow believers were being threatened to be ripped limb from limb. So he knew where they were, and what does he pray? That they would know God. Isn't that interesting? Paul doesn't pray for their protection or their safety. And yet he knows exactly who they are and where they live. He understands that Ephesus is the business and the cultural and the religious capital of Asia Minor. He understands that right outside the theater, just to the left, I've stood in that theater, down the street of Ephesus, uh, about a quarter of a mile away was the great temple of the goddess Diana or Artemis. And that worship of her, well, it was filled with both violence and vile sexuality. He understood how dangerous it was to be a believer there. And yet his prayer is that they would know God better, as though that might be the most important thing we could ever pray to. I know sometimes we, we default back to, Lord, just protect or just provide or just make the way go smoother or just make life go easier. But Paul says, no, dream bigger than that. Dream that you would know the glorious and eternal God. You'll often hear sometimes in today's culture that at no time in history has it been more dangerous or darker for a Christian to live. I think we can only say that if we don't read the Bible and we don't read history. Because the Bible says that's just not true. The faith was always born into a people where the darkness surrounded them. And Paul says, for those kind of people, they need to know God better and better. So what does Paul want them to know about God? Look at verse 18 and 19. I want you to know, first of all, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? The very same things Johanna led us to pray about in our worship time, through those same three things. 
that we would know, first of all, God's calling. Secondly, that we would know God's inheritance. And third, that we would know God's power. Those must be anchoring because Paul wouldn't lift it up as his chief prayer otherwise. Let's look at that first one. In verse 18, having the eyes of your heart enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. Hope. Hope. Think about the way we use the word. We use it almost simultaneously or synonymously with the word wish, right? I hope the Chiefs beat the Cardinals today. And at the same time, I hope the sun comes up tomorrow. Would we all acknowledge that those are different? One is a wish. The other is an expectation. Every time you read the word hope in the Bible, do not think wish. Think confident expectation. And Paul here says, I pray first and foremost that you would have a confident expectation of a calling on your life. And that calling is not your calling. This isn't our cultural world of follow your own heart, dream your own dream, chase your dreams. Paul says, stop that nonsense and go bigger than yourself. I want you to have a hope in his calling. Be caught up in a bigger story to which you've been called. And he's talking about salvation. And last week, we detailed 13 blessings of our salvation. All of them were written in this indicative language, which basically means all of these were things that happened either for us or to us on behalf of another. So we were chosen. We were adopted. We have been sealed, right? We are uh, redeemed. We are forgiven. So Paul says, the first thing I need you to know, and oh, I want the Spirit to open your eyes on, is that you would know with a confident expectation that you have that kind of future life with Christ. So now let me ask you, why is that such a big deal? Because the people who have it, they live bigger than the people who don't, even Christians who have it and don't have it. What do I mean by that? I want you to imagine right now two coworkers side by side doing the dirtiest, nastiest job you can imagine. So I need you to pick a job. Don't, I mean, truly pick a job in your mind. Dirtiest, nastiest job you can imagine. Got it? Okay, I've got in my mind cleaning septic tanks. You're welcome. It makes your dusting the blinds look a little sanitary right now, right? Now, I want you to think of two workers doing that kind of job, and one of them knows he makes $15 an hour, which means at the end of a week of 40 hours of cleaning septic tanks, he's going to have $600 minus taxes. The other one had the owner of the company come up and whisper in his ear, hey, at payday on the week's end, I'm going to give you half the equity stake in my company. Your share will be $1.5 million. Do you think that changes that week for those two workers? I mean, they both have the same job, and unless I'm mistaken, septic tank cleaning is still septic tank cleaning. But one of them has additional ingredient, has hope, a confident expectation of a calling, a future that is so much brighter. Paul says, I want you to live with that same kind of vision of your future calling in Christ. And he says, well, he says the same thing that 
Tim Keller has acknowledged for years, and that is that human beings are hope-shaped creatures, meaning we cannot help but be hope-shaped, which is right now you're sitting listening to me, and at the same time you can think about tomorrow at the same moment. You know we're the only animals on the planet that can live today and think about tomorrow at the same time. I guarantee you my dog right now back home is not doing that. She's thinking about eating when she's hungry, sleeping when she's tired, getting walked when somebody rattles the leash at her, but only lives only in the moment. But we are different. We can live today and hold on to tomorrow at the same time. And that is both an incredible blessing and at the same time, a powerful burden at the same time, isn't it? Hope is the fuel that keeps our eyes open. It keeps our hearts alive. It keeps us engaged with life. And God's desire for us is that we would have a hope in his calling. Because his calling is our security. I mean, it changes how secure you live right now. Think of Dan's adopted sons. I mean, life changes for the better the more and more they rest in the security of having a forever home and a forever father and a forever provision. And the first thing he noticed within a month was they stopped sneaking food from the table because that calling became their security. And we know that as parents. How defective would my fathering be if I actually thought that my son Parker would perform better at school if he didn't know he had a home to come to after school. That somehow the threat of not studying hard enough and earning good enough grades and being good enough would somehow, if I could threaten him with that, then he would, be, he would probably perform better. No, we know that's crazy. That it's the security of a forever father and a forever home and that kind of calling that allows you to embrace the assignment that you've been given in temporary. Now, if we know that as parents who can be foolish and sometimes even evil, how much does God, the perfect father, know that that security is what will fuel our hope even in a day that can be dark around us? Our father wants us to know the hope of his calling, and that hope is ours because of whose we are. The first thing he prays for is this secure hope of a future with him. And then secondly, he prays in verse 18, having the eyes of your heart enlightened that you may know, secondly, what the riches of his glorious inheritance in the, in the saints. Did you catch that? The pronouns are really important in this one. He says, I want you to know what are the riches of whose glorious inheritance? His Oh, this is so different, but kind of alike. Verse 11 last week. Verse 11 last week, we learned that we have obtained an inheritance in Christ. Now in verse 18, we realize he, God, has obtained an inheritance in Christ. In Christ, we inherit salvation. And at the same time, in Christ, God inherits us. Does that change your vision of yourself as a believer or the church you belong to? 
It's the same salvation story from Old Testament to New Testament. In the Old Testament, God called Israel a people of my own possession, my inheritance. In the New Testament, he calls the church by the same title, a people of my own possession. Remember two weeks ago, we talked about that in our Identity in Christ message. God inherits us. God inherits you. I have two inherited cups at home. Here's a picture of both of them. The one on the left is my great-grandmother's teacup. Nobody in the family knows how old it is. We know it's at least 150 years old, but we've been told that she inherited it from her grandmother. My mom said there were only four pieces of china left, and so she wanted each of her four sons to have one piece. I just found that so ironic because we were the same four boys that she used to say, boys, this is why we can't have nice stuff. And she placed a 150-year-old cup in my hand. And it's protected in a china hutch on display because it's precious and cherished. The other cup to the right, I have inherited from the University of Arkansas Razorbacks. It is a souvenir cup. I have 47 of them. How many do you have? (laughs) I paid $47 for each Coke that it came in. Far more than I did for the China cup. You know where I got that cup? Not out of a protected China hutch. Out of the bathtub. It's where my grandkids play when they're splashing around. When it's my turn to clean the tub, it's what I use to rinse it down. By the way, when it gets a crack, I'll pitch it in the recycling bin. One of those the Bible would describe as common. The other of those the Bible would describe as sanctified or set apart for a special purpose. That phrase, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? Again, if you're looking at the NIV in your study guide, It says of his holy and set apart and sanctified people. Which cup do you see yourself as? Common, disposable, just good for a temporary job, or eternal and set aside for display? Don't answer that yourself. Oh, please don't stoop to coming up with your own vision on what gives you significance. Because on my worst days, I can think of lots of lies that define me, and I'm sure you can too. Instead, let God answer that question. Which cup are you? And God says, I'll tell you who are you. You are the riches of my glorious inheritance. Those are his words, not mine. When the Holy Spirit sealed us in Christ, God inherits us. When when God purchased us, redeemed us, remember that word last week? He purchased us with the precious priceless blood of Jesus Christ. And God has no buyer's remorse. He's not like we are. He's not fickle-hearted like we are. We save up for a car, buy one we think we want, and then drive around for the next three months thinking of one we could have had that's better. God doesn't do that when he sees you. He knew exactly what he was getting when he adopted you. And he has no regrets. He adopted you before the foundation of the world, which meant before you're good, you're bad, or you're ugly ever hit this planet. He said, you're mine. And I consider you an inheritance, a 
for all eternity, I am going to show you off in a glorious China hutch, the place he is preparing for us, Jesus said. I go ahead of you to prepare a place for you. It's so priceless in his vision that Ephesians 1 tells us that he puts us on display as a trophy of grace for all of creation to see. In fact, later in Ephesians, I think it's in two more chapters, we're gonna read that he puts us on as a trophy of grace that even angels will look at and go, can you believe the grace and the might of God that he would take earth dwellers, men and women made in his image, and make us eternal glorious beings? This is what God has done for us. I was about 20 years old on a large state university where Christians were a very, very, very small minority. And I was falling in love with Jesus and just wanted to grow more. And I don't know what possessed me to do this, but I heard about this seminary class, this graduate program in the summer that would offer courses to people who hadn't even graduated college for, and you could audit it, pay and drive there and audit the class. And I show up and we're with smart people who were way smarter than me. And I sat in this class where John Hanna, the kind of famous professor of doctrine and church history at Dallas Seminary taught. I still remember him leaning over this wooden lectern and he takes his glasses off and he goes, all I know is that when I get to heaven, I'm gonna be shocked by three things. First of all, who is there? Second of all, who's not there? Third and most importantly, that I am there. And the only common story between everyone will be the glorious grace of God. That's what bought your inheritance. And he is proud to put you on display. And while we wait for that day, he does not leave us alone. Because we're not orphaned. We're adopted. And so the third thing he prays for us, he prays not only that we, our inheritance will become our significance, but he prays, third, that we would know, verse 19 and 20, what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Paul actually prays here that we would know the unknowable. <laughs> That's why he calls it the immeasurable greatness of his power. I pray you would know what you can't even get your arms around. But he said it's really important that you understand his power. And the word for power he uses is the Greek word dunamos. Dunamis is a great, don't you think the next Avenger should be named Dunamis? It's where we get our English word dynamite. And Paul says, I need you to understand what this power is like. And so he reaches, even though he says it's unknowable, he reaches to try to explain it to us. And he uses all four of the most common words for power in the Greek language. And they're the four that are highlighted there. He calls it mega, dynamite, energy. Force, mega dynamite energy force. That is not the elixir that Dunamis, the Avenger, drinks. That is the presence 
of the Holy Spirit who lives in us, who believe in Jesus Christ. That's the story of every ordinary Christian who's placed their faith in Jesus. Look around the room. We are a big collection of the most ordinary, eaten up by average group of people you've ever seen in your life. Don't, don't let anybody tell us we're spectacular. No, you know how average you are. And aren't you grateful? You don't have to outperform or outshine the next person to be that glorious inheritance of God or to experience the power of him in his life. You just have to believe that he's extraordinary and that he lives in you. And our little average ordinary lives are, are changed and transformed by that which is why Leon Morris, who's a, an Australian scholar and theologian, he famously said of this passage, the same power that brought Christ from the dead is operative within those who are Christ's. And I love his punchline, ready? The resurrection is an ongoing thing. What does resurrection do? It brings dead things back to life. Ongoing. There are dead parts of my spiritual life that can be refused by the life-giving power of the Holy Spirit and transformed. It's an ongoing thing. And power is only as strong as what it can accomplish, which is why the rest of the description of God's power is found in verse 20 through 23. Paul says, I want you to know about this power, mega dynamite energy force power called the Holy Spirit in you. And he says that, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, yeah, even far above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. The implications of God's power in this little passage are staggering. See, practically speaking, this means that the power of God, it just said it raised Christ from the dead. Now, don't forget, last week we found out that when we place our faith in Jesus for salvation, we are now in him. So the same power of God that raised Christ from the dead, we are now in that power, which means we are alive forevermore. He is the eternal God, and if he has raised us with him, you cannot die. We are alive forevermore. Secondly, the power of God that seated Christ on a heavenly throne. Now, don't forget, we're seated in Christ. That means we have spiritual authority now. Spiritual authority submitted unto his lordship. Third, he says, the power of God that made Christ head of the church, and we are in Christ. That means that we are closely connected to his life-giving presence forevermore. If he's the head and we're the body attached to him, you don't walk a moment alone. His is the power that is with you. I guess all that's a theological way of saying his power becomes our strength. And that's good news for people that need God's power. Because we need God's power as our strength to overcome habitual sin that traps us, maybe feels, causes us to feel addicted to it. We need God's power, not our own. We need God's power 
to help us love someone who's difficult to love or forgive someone who's done the unthinkable, unspeakable to us. We need God's power to help us endure a trial or a difficulty or maybe to stay faithful to a hard assignment he's given us. We need God's power to to do things like speak for Christ in a setting where maybe you feel like the only believer there or the power to serve someone in the name of Christ in a setting of your community group or even in this church body. We We don't have to do what Dan's little adopted boys did and go fend for ourselves. We go back to the source of power and we lean into him. And Paul says, I need you to know, I want you to know, oh, I want you to know the immeasurable power that is yours because of the Holy Spirit. Those are the three things he prays for us. First of all, that we would, he would know, uh, that we would know his calling. Second of all, that we would know his inheritance of us. And third, that we would know his power in us. And John Stott, the British pastor, has connected the three dots so well between past, present, and future. And he says, if God's call looks back to the beginning and God's inheritance looks on to the end, then surely God's power spans the interim period in between. Meaning, your adoption brings you a very present Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He is proud to have you as his own. He intends to display you as a glorious trophy of grace forevermore. God himself lives with a confident expectation, a hope of the future. And it's one that he not only can see, he has the power to pull off and he will finish the task. And it is a people of his own possession, the church, who radiates his goodness and glory for all eternity. All Paul wants us to know now is to know that a little bit better while we live out our temporary assignment on this earth. This week, can I ask you to lock into those same three truths that come out of this prayer? Would you dare this week to pray Ephesians 1, 15 through 23 every morning for yourself, For members of your household, if that's your biological family, great. If that's a roommate, great. Pray it for yourself, your household. Pray it even for the members of your community group. Maybe for some of us, you'll choose to pray this every morning and every evening before you close your eyes, asking God to allow us to know him better and better because his calling, his inheritance, his power, it's such a big deal for us. Let me pray this for us now. Oh God, we do look to you, lean into you, depend upon you for these very things. Would you be kind enough to us to open the eyes of our heart that we may see your calling on our lives, your inheritance of us, and your power in our lives. Oh, God, as a church at Fellowship Benville, we need this. I need this most of all. Lord, forgive when I pull from self-resources, my own power, my own sense of calling and vision for my life, my own self-help style of significance. Lord, you know that's a fool's errand. Call me home. Call my friends here home. 
to the Father who's adopted us. We pray this for your church. We thank you that Fellowship Bentonville is one expression of your church in this city. But we ask it for our friends at Grace Point, at Catalyst Church, at New Heights Bentonville, every place your people gather. Lord, help us know you better. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Let's stand together. Let's remind ourselves of the one who is our firm foundation, in whom we find our strength, our significance, our security. Let's sing it out together as a church. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest flame, but wholly trust in Jesus' name. Sing it out. 
so good to sing of that secure hope we have. Just like the sun is going to rise tomorrow, we can bank on Jesus's love and his salvation. Well, uh, we would love to pray with you. If you need help exercising, like Mark was talking about, exercising God's power that he gives to us, and you want others to pray with you, Dick and Connie Norvig are over here, and they'd love to pray with you. Uh, if you want to get connected now is the time. This is the fall launch time to get connected. And so uh, if you're new and you missed this first Discover that started today, jump in next week. Discover large group number two will be next week and, and jump in next week. Uh, we'd love to have you and connect with somebody at the community booth if you have more questions. Let me uh, read this passage or pray this passage over you. This is our, our staff is praying this for our body, and uh, it's Ephesians, the passage Mark just taught us. Ephesians 1, 15 through 23. Ever since we heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all God's people, we have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in our prayers. We keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation, so that you may know him better. We pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened 
in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. Amen. Have a great week, fellowship. Greet one another on the way out. Get to know each other.